This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. My name is Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about biochar, a product that is important for soil rejuvenation, as well as reducing hazardous fuels in the forest and carbon from the atmosphere. I'm Darren McAvoy. I'm an extension assistant professor at Utah State University. Also call myself an extension forester. I am a forester by trade. I'm actually a fellow of the Society of American Foresters. I've been studying and practicing this field for 40 years now, thereabouts. I worked as a consultant and a logger, and I've been an extension forester for about 20, 25 years now. My job here is to direct the Utah Forest Landowner Education Program, where I write the Utah Forest News and put on annual workshops to show people about timber harvesting and wildland fire. And uh, I'm also the chair and co-founder of the Utah Biomass Resources Group. And I'm also the chair of the Utah Prescribed Fire Council. Nice. Thank you for that. Yeah. So today I wanted to talk about your involvement in in biomass projects. And the definition of biomass is any organic matter that is renewable. And biomass is stored solar energy. And I just wanted to see if you could elaborate on what what exactly this means. The sun shines, it it creates these beautiful forests and, and landscapes, vegetation across our landscapes through the process of photosynthesis and, and that material is often sitting on the landscape and something is going to happen with that material. It's either going to burn or it's going to rot or it's going to be collected. Perhaps some of it's going to be eaten by animals and humans. Uh, Our effort is to collect the unused portion of it and to try to make a product out of it, make value out of that. And biomass is anything that has ever grown, anything organic from bugs to animals to plants and everything in between. Okay, very cool. And so the the Biomass Resources Group, can you go into a a little bit more about what the purpose of this group is? What our main goal turns out to be is reducing hazardous fuels. That's sort of a forestry term Forest Service likes to use and other federal agencies for excess Woody debris slash is another term for it that, that exists in, in the woods. And it, in Utah, it often can be in the form of juniper that has expanded over the last 100 years. The amount of acres that are covered in juniper in Utah has at least doubled. It can include upland conifer debris or the leftovers from logging after we harvest timber. Only about really a a third of the log makes it to the sawmill, the the best third, the biggest, the stem. And the rest, the top, the the leaves, the needles, uh, there's no value for that at this point in time. You mentioned it's a a tough job to gather all this up. I mean, how physically, how do you gather it up? Well, it often kind of depends on the resource that we're talking about. If it's upland conifer, what are typically referred to as pines in Utah, 
often when it is logged or harvested, timber is harvested, they call it whole tree harvesting. So they cut down the tree and they drag the whole tree to a central processing facility or area in the woods called the landing. And that's where all this excess material tends to stack up. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it is already sort of collected in that process in the process of logging. In the process of juniper treatment, when the BLM or a private landowner or even the Forest Service is cutting juniper for better wildlife habitat or for better stream flows, that material is, is very hard to collect and, and bring to a central point. There's only a few commercial processors in the state or even in the nation that, that actually do that. Most often that juniper is just chipped up or masticated, they say, that's roughly chipped in big chunks and then spread out in the woods. And so that even creates a, a further challenge to try to collect that material. And then we do a lot of work with uh, invasive species, woody species in Utah, in particular tamarisk, also known as salt cedar, um, and Russian olive. They tend to grow along the river bottoms in Utah and have significant impact on the ecology of those river bottoms. And there's many efforts going on around the state by federal and state governments to remove uh, that invasive material. So more willows and other natives will grow in its place. Very cool. So you're gathering all this slash or biomass or whatever it is, and you bring it in and then biochar. Then biochar. So how can you describe the process of biochar? How you are taking this biomass and transforming it to something as a usable product? So I started off the biomass group. We started off in 2009 with a gasifier. This is a machine, a device that we put wood into and we cook the wood at super high temperatures, like 800 degrees Celsius in the absence of oxygen. And that turns all of that material into a gas. It's just like propane or methane, or at least very similar. And I just went to Lowe's and bought a propane generator. We run that gas after we clean it up a little bit through this generator. And we make enough power for about two homes from wood on a mobile platform. Uh, we called this machine the Dragon Wagon. Uh, we painted up this cool van and drove it around the state doing demonstrations. But we discovered it wasn't as practical as we had hoped that a farmer or rancher couldn't just put a barrel of wood on it and walk away for eight hours and let the wood chips do their work. It took all of their effort and focus to keep that machine running. So that made it highly impractical, really. But uh, my evolution towards burning things in boxes, which is what I mostly do now, led me from that gasifier, which cooked the wood at 800 degrees Celsius in the absence of oxygen, to a, a very sophisticated machine called a pyrolysis machine with computer hookups and everything that cooks the wood at slightly lower temperatures between 400 and 600 degrees Celsius. And it turns it into three different products. Some of it turns into a gas, it's called synthesis gas or syngas, just like we were making with a gasifier, similar to propane or methane. About a quarter of it turns into that. About a quarter of the material turns into a biochar, it's charcoal type material. Biochar is essentially charcoal intended for as a soil amendment. And then about half of the material turned into a bio oil. And at the time, the price of petroleum, this was before 2014, and the price of petroleum was 
over $100 a barrel. So our bio oil was competitive in the market. But then when the price of petroleum dropped, we lost the value of our bio oil, had to do all of our focus on the biochar. Since that time, I've come to realize it's important part of the market that we're able to make a sophisticated biochar with a half million dollar machine such as that. Since that machine was kind of so expensive to operate and the feedstock handling costs were so significant, we have to chip all the material before we put it into any of these higher tech machines. Oh. And the chipping costs often is more than the cost to pyrolyze the material oh. to cook it into these thermochemically decomposed into these three different products. And so that led me down this path towards the low tech to make it more accessible that a farmer or a rancher or a homeowner could do it in the backyard or on the farm or in the ranch. That path led me to a biochar conference in Corvallis, Oregon in 2016 and got exposed to these Oregon kilns. And these are these small metal boxes, about the, they're five foot by five foot, somewhere the size of the back of a pickup truck, about two feet high. And they weigh about 200 pounds. They have handles on them. Just any fabricator can make them. And I have plans and a fact sheet that I can share with people if they're interested. And we take just raw logs, uh, usually dried is better, but can do wet material. So not chipped material. So we don't have a lot of cost and energy into processing it. We don't have a lot of cost and energy into moving it at this point because we take these kilns right out into the woods as close to the stump as possible. And we like to say to right. minimize the movement of all that material and the right. cost. And so we have a process of burning the wood in those kilns that creates a, a form of pyrolysis. So that is cooking the wood in the absence of oxygen that happens deep down inside the kiln. The top of it is open. Uh, we call them in fact, flame cap kilns because we load it up with logs up to 10 inch diameter, these small kilns in a crisscross pattern. And that creates enough oxygen in there to get the fire going. And there's no openings in the bottom of the kiln. It's sealed, just the top is open. And then we top light it, which is a critical part of the process. And then as it burns down, it forms this cap of flames that consumes most of the combustibles as they rise up through the column. So it results in a much cleaner and actually safer burn than just open pile burning, which is the standard business practice in forestry when we have excess slash like that, just to light the pile simply from the bottom and let it, all that material burn up. And all that material, you know, of course, is going up in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases when we do this. I mean, when we make biochar, then we preserve about a third of the carbon in that material, which is kind of one of our goals. What we're looking for in that kiln is charcoal, not ash. The process continues after the initial light. You keep adding fuel, logs, sticks, branches to that, kind of like tending a campfire. If you put on too much at once, it will smother the fire. Mm -hmm. If you put on too little, it will all get consumed. And over the course of a morning, you keep adding and adding as the fire allows. And maybe about lunchtime, you'll have a kiln full of coals. And you're looking for this point where the flames stop and it's just glowing combustion. At that point, we quench it. 
on a small kiln like that, it would be about 70 gallons of water. And we stir it up and we put out all the heat, all the fire. And we preserve that charcoal product. And that is, in fact, biochar, a charcoal that is intended as a soil amendment or other sort of organic purpose. What is done with the biochar? Is it sold or is it just reused by the forest? When we make it in the woods in this way, some portion of it is collected and brought down for people's gardens and it's, it is charcoal. So I'll, can, you can host your friends over for a barbecue and have local charcoal, local juniper charcoal grilled salmon or something for dinner. I've done this before, but uh, most of it is for forest restoration okay. at that point. It, biochar certainly has markets and people buy and sell it more at the higher end from slightly more sophisticated machines. At this point, it's such a new thing and there's not that much production of it. I haven't really seen a financial market develop yet for this in woods produced biochar. This biochar material, it's a handful of it has about the surface area of a football field. So it's all about the structure of the material. And you spread that out in the soil and it makes a home for microbes to sort of hide from predators. And so it increases the microbial activity of soil. It increases the water holding capacity of soil by, oh, in the neighborhood of 20,000 gallons per acre. So I like to say it's like putting, turning our dry mountainsides into reservoirs, essentially. If that soil has more water in it, the remaining plants are going to more be more drought resistant and thereby more fire resistant over time. Wow. So you're removing hazardous fuels and at the same time you are improving more or less the health of the forest by and like giving it a, a way to harbor more more moisture. True. And at the same time, I didn't used to talk about this so much, but increasingly I point out these benefits. There's no other way, Peggy, that I can teach people, that I'm aware of anybody can teach people to sequester carbon and store carbon long-term on the farm, on the ranch, in the backyard. And this method allows that. This material, this biochar material in the soil, it's got half-life approaching a thousand years. And so um, if we preserve a third of the carbon from every stick that we put in there and put that in the soil, that's less carbon that's in the atmosphere. So this is, to my thinking, the most direct and meaningful way that people can fight climate change uh, right, right at home. And so you mentioned the kilns being used in Oregon. I mean, how widespread is this practice at this point? And where's, where's Utah and all of that? I'm glad you asked. I got started with those little kilns. They're called Oregon kilns usually. And my real interest was scaling this up to make it more effective on a logging job for bigger materials. And so I've developed this thing I call big box biochar. I had to refine them to a point to what I call the BB12, a, a big box 12 foot long kiln. That's a double wall construction. So it's 2019 when I first developed this and started experimenting with it with partners in the Providence uh, here in the Logan Ranger District and Providence Canyon. And actually there are quite a bit in Moab, the, the, the Moab District of the Utah BLM has been a great partner and actually owns their own BB12. We've used many times there on the banks of the Colorado River on either side doing tamarisk and Russian olive and, and other species there have one kiln that I 
have helped the Montana BLM uh, developed in Dillon, Montana. I have one being built right now, my partners in Ionia, Colorado, and my sort of most exciting and recent step in that direction as I started working last week with a team of uh, entrepreneurs from South Africa that want to build their own big box kiln or set of them. And so it's, it's sort of taken off. Yeah. And so if someone want their own kiln, uh, is it a type of thing that they just build themselves or do you have to make it for them? I mean, No, uh, they can have built for them. If any qualified welder can build uh-huh. any of these kilns and these plans are open source, I have them available and I have fact sheets with that material, directions and instructions inside of them. I want to encourage people to do it. I don't want to be the only person building them and I'm yeah. certainly not at this point. How refined is the process? I mean, are there certain areas you're still working on to fine tune? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) I have lots of dreams for making it more accessible. Some of the more challenging parts of it right now are the transportation of the kiln, uh, the big box kilns, you know, that 2,000 pounds, even though you can drag it up on a trailer and haul it with a typical pick up still a lot for somebody who's not used to working with heavy equipment and even it's a little bit tricky for some people who are it's easy to say oh just put wheels on it but of course tires would melt uh, during the process and one lead I need to follow through on that way was on a website KSL looking for looking at used sauna stuff recently and and there was a a portable sauna that is being advertised for rent and it's with the cool thing is that it's got these wheels that raise up and down they kind of go out of the way when when they're not needed and that technology actually comes from ice fishing shacks hoping to learn more about that technology and maybe import it here to see if we can use it to make our kilns more transportable that's one example another sort of route of investigation i'd like to go down is measuring the smoke impacts, the air quality impacts from these kilns and do a direct comparison to open pile burning. What I'd like to do is convince state organizations who oversee smoke management to allow us more leeway when we're using the kilns than with open pile burning because they are so much cleaner. But I I need a fair bit of money to develop that data, to do that research. So that's another area of uh, investigation I hope to go to. So yeah, transportation, making them easier to tip and improving the cleanliness of of the burns will be areas of of work for me in the the future. Perhaps I'll finish with a short history of biochar. It comes from the Amazon rainforest. About 25 years ago, a Dutch agronomist was uh, flying over the Amazon and it was recently logged lands for grazing. He sees these straight lines down in the soil of this recently logged land and says to himself, well, this is virgin rainforest. Nobody, there's never been cities in, in the Amazon. How could this be? Goes to inspect and he discovers these huge embankments of terra preta, dark earth soils, Amazonian dark earths. What we think happened was that perhaps 2,500 years ago, there were cities that lived in the Amazon. And we ask ourselves, how could they support themselves with that poor soil? That's why they do slash and burn agriculture there, because the soil will only produce 
vegetables for four or five years and they have to move on. People there learned how to amend their soils with their pot shards and their compost and their charcoal or biochar. And today those soils produce seven times the amount of vegetables and, and, and grains as a typical rainforest soil will. So those soils are being mined for potting soils in, in the cities in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. So this, wow. this ancient lesson of, of biochar that we're trying to revive and, and use that, that ancient knowledge in a more modern context today. Darren, I appreciate you talking with Science Moab, and it's really great to get the word out on this whole process of biochar and all the fabulous advantages of it. Thank you, Peggy. I really appreciate your interest and support. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Newsletter by Luke Williams. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.